Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends. Welcome back. I'm so happy that today's episode is on chili. Now, I don't do enough episodes on this amazing, long, skinny South American country. So I've decided I am going to, as it's magical. And yet the general consumer's understanding of these wines is cheap and cheerful. When in actual fact, this is a country of insane diversity of beautiful wine traditions since the 1500s, now making a comeback and with some of the oldest vines in the world and with explorers planting so far down south in the depths of Patagonia, only the very edgiest wines are being produced. So watch this space. Today though, I am joined by Lee Isaacs, a specialist in South America. He teaches and inspires students doing their WSET level three. He's been in wine sales on the independent side and national level, wine writing, wine buying, coordinating of wine tasting events, wine marketing. So, you know, there's not much that Lee hasn't done. And he's an absolute pleasure to listen to when he's poetically narrating his observations on a sip of wine. He's just started his own podcast and when I was listening I realized gosh I really love listening to Lee talking about wine so it's a very different potty to mine it's called The Maker and The Merchant Lee is the merchant and the maker small world is Balfour's winemaker Fergus Elias but loads of pop culture references in there some good wine banter and on each episode instead of it being on one theme they touch on loads of different wines and topics and thoughts so it's just very easy listening so go and check that out but to the job in hand Lee and I are talking mainly in this episode about Carmen Air a little of its history why it got the bad rep as a great variety, how it's completely changed and changing, and why you need to grab a bottle of this wonderful wine. Now, as they say in Spanish, que disfrutes el episodio. Enjoy the episode. Lee, on a scale of one to ten, in advance, how good do you think this episode is going to be? Uh, I think if we keep my bits to a minimum, it's at least an 11. You know that on most podcasts, actually, when I'm editing it, it's typically 70% the guest and 30% me. So that's going to be tough. Your, your listeners are in for a rough, arid <laughs> ride with, with this episode. Now, I warn everybody, Lee has some self-esteem issues. <laughs> but alongside that, a lot of wine knowledge. So Lee, come on introduce yourself but actually be kind to yourself you've done a lot in the industry and along the way you've picked some stuff up so what are you doing now who are you who am i this is a question that neither i nor modern psychologists have yet been able to answer (laughs) despite despite repeated studies although there's no funding for that what with covid and brexit and all of that now but anyway i'm so sorry uh, about that I, well, you know, I, I, I'm used to it. I'm northern working class, so this is. I, I'm, I've ended up Relatable. exactly where I expected to be. Relatable. Essentially, exactly. who who am I? I I've been in wine for twenty years, so I've, I've worked in wine for twenty years. Twenty years this this July just gone, mm. but I've been around wine 
since quite a young age. I work around the whole of the UK, but I'm based in Oxfordshire. So I meet and work with a lot of people who've grown up with wine, as I have, but they've grown up with quite expensive wines. You know, they have <laughs> access to cellars that, that was beyond, not even within our wildest dreams. Wine Ugh, wasn't them, that. Those people. Them, those people. Um, and wine wasn't that to, to my family. It was just... You know, we liked homemade food. We liked nice music. My, my father was a very keen wine drinker. Um, my father was the kind of wine drinker that might go into a wine shop and say, I don't know anything about wine, but I know Chateau Neuf de Pape is good. And I think there's real power in that. I, I think that's definitely informed my approach to wine without me even realising it in the early days. So I, I kind of, I was exposed to wine from about the age of five. My parents' idea was if we give him a little bit, he won't go crazy with it. But the joke is, but on you them. did. Oh, I you did. did. I joined the wine industry, you know. <laughs> so I, I, I continue to be a disappointment to them uh, in many different ways. But I was exposed to it, and it just became this really fascinating thing. There's an incident that happened when I was 13, and I, I sort of blind tasted something, not knowing what I was doing because I was 13. Right. When you grow up in wine, in, a, in a, there's a certain cultural element where you grow up knowing what blind tasting is, and you're exposed to loads of different styles of wine, and, and that wasn't my wine upbringing. But I, I blind tasted a wine and I kind of I kind of knew that, you know, people had these skills where they could taste something and tell you what it was. I'd seen Os Clark and Julie, this is how old I am, I'd seen Os Clark <laughs> and Julie Goulden on um, BBC's Food and Drink, you know, which is about a million years ago now. So I was aware that this was a thing you could do and I, and, and I did it and I was correct. So I, I tasted this wine and I guessed, you know, what grape variety it was and, and where it was from. At Not 13. knowing what I was doing at, at 13. Do you remember the grape? I do, yes. It was, was a it? Shiraz. It was a okay. Shiraz and, okay. and it was from Australia. But in case anybody's listening to this going, wow, this guy's some kind of wine superhero. Your mum and dad only bought Shiraz? <laughs> Ever. But, yeah, exactly. The popular wine at the time was Australian Shiraz. That, that's, whereas today you look at a house wine list and it's an Italian Pinot Grigio, a New Zealand Sauvignon, or an Argentine Malbec, or maybe a Chilean Merlot. Back in the day when, when this event happened, it was Aussie Shiraz. That's what went on this. But it's also what we drank. We spent some time in Australia, lived out there for a little while. So, you know, we drank a lot of Australian Shiraz. So all I was doing was recognising something I drank at home. There was mm. there was no real thought process in it. I didn't... I'd see Again, I'd seen people taste it, but my parents didn't drink wine like that. That was what these people on the telly did. And I guess there was... I don't know. I guess there was something aspirational about that. I kind of liked that somebody might be able to do that. I was fascinated by flavor. You know, I grew up with flavor. Everything was home cooked. You know, we didn't eat a single kind of ready meal or anything like that. Yeah. Very rarely had takeaways. So I was exposed to kind of flavors. Flavors, right? Exactly. Uh, and textures, right? And so, also, although I didn't realize it at the time, um, there's a quote, isn't there, from, and I use this all the time. Yeah, uh, your quote. From, from, I, I, I have quotes. There's a quote from Soren Kierkegaard. That states life can only be understood backwards but must be lived forwards. Now, at the time, I didn't know that quote, and at the time, I didn't know the importance of the event of blind tasting this wine and getting it right. But I look back now, that was where the seed was planted in my mind that went, This, I think this is what I'd like to do. In the back of my mind, there was always that thing's like, Wine's really cool, I really mm-hmm. like that, that thing. Um, and yeah, when I turned 18, got a wine job. 20 years later, here I am. I, I now work for a, a national wholesaler, which is as thrilling as it as it sounds. No, that's well, not To be honest, fair. I love the way you said wholesaler. Wholesaler. <laughs> You've got to be a bit, you know, do you, want to, do you want to buy something? Come on, I've got a box of wine. You've got to buy it, buy it, buy it. Um, so my, my background is independent. So I've, I've, I've run wine schools. I've run independent wine merchants. My, my entire background in wine up until five years ago was independent businesses. 
And then you, you hit a point in life where I can either carry on doing this thing where I, I work lots of hours, don't really have any money, and I'll carry on that way. Or find a way of doing something I really enjoy, but that maybe has a better work-life balance. And so the, the job I was doing before, I was head of education for Oxford's oldest wine school. And I was away 120 nights a year from my family. I wasn't at home. Um, and, and I was doing really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was teaching abroad. I was, I was traveling to Italy okay. quite regularly. Oh, that's you know, cool. amazing things. But I was away from home a lot. And so I kind of okay. found this wrong. So, okay, it, it's going into a big wholesaler. It, it's not that independent business that I'm used to. But actually, it looks like a really good business to work for. And actually, this job will allow me to be at home much more, earn money that, that that is kind of more where I need it to be in the current climate and the lifestyle we'd like to have and all of that. Um, and five years later, I'm still there. And I sort of made the joke about, oh, you know, this is where I've ended up. They're a brilliant employer. I love working for them. I have a great work-life balance. They've been incredibly supportive uh, as a business. So I, so I work for this national wholesaler. And, and it's great because I actually I meet such a wide and diverse array of people. We, The business I work for, we, we sell to your tiny little, you know, 12-seater restaurant. We sell to national chains. We still to sell to football stadiums. That's cool. Uh, and, and everybody in between. And I cover the whole UK from, really, from a training and development perspective. More, I do sort of little bits of marketing and, and buying and making the tea, um, which I think is probably the, the part of the job I'm best at, is making the tea. Uh, but I get to speak <laughs> to so many different people about wine. And that, you know, part of the joy of what we do is the people, right? Isn't it? People, the food, the culture, the travel, all mingled in to one. So tell me, of all the time, the 20 years you have been in this wine industry, I want you to paint a picture to maybe get somebody else into the wine industry. What has been the best moment? Oh, it, it's, it's really difficult to pick <laughs> specifically because I'm incredibly privileged that I get to do something I dearly love for a living. So um, I don't know, my favourite, I've, I've been very lucky to visit uh, Piedra Infinita, which is Familia Zaccardi's winery in Paraje mm. Altamira, oh. which is, has just won World's Again. Best third, third time in a row. I was going to say, like, they, you know, they won it last year for sure. Ha- oh. Hat trick. And that, I've been very privileged to visit some incredible wineries and locations in wine, but that, you sit in the restaurant there and you feel like you could put your hand out and touch the top of the Andes. And it's the most peaceful, if, if you're into kind of like, energies and it all sounds a bit zen and out there maybe but hey it's free no i love it describe it oh it's you just the air is pure right there's no there's no pollution in the air and you get that and it's peaceful and it's quiet and the only sounds you hear are the sounds of night and the winery itself you almost have to be on top of it before you realize it's there because it's quite flat it's built it's constructed from entirely natural resources that were there nothing has been brought in mm. or redirected so all the water is sourced locally all that you're almost on top of this winery before you realize it's there so there's an element of you've got to film this as a as a james bond villain's lair for sure <laughs> but it's peaceful it's serene it's tranquil it's the last bastion of solitude your phone doesn't work there's no signal all you've got around you are the wines that you're tasting that are being made there the vines are you, you know you park up and there's the vines yeah. and you just you're at peace with the world and it that if i had to pick a specific moment and there is a bit of recency bias i suppose be biased and actually when i was there um obviously i haven't been able to go back to argentina because of covid the day we went was our seventh wedding anniversary and we got married in uh in mendoza in argentina so 
to be able to go back there together on on that anniversary as well and celebrate. It's mm. a staggeringly beautiful place. And I think if I remember, they've got beautiful like concrete eggs, don't they? When you go into oh, the yes. winery, am I? Yeah. This is the right image I've got in my head. Yeah. So oh. you what you walk in it this. There's, there's, there, there is oak there, but there's not a lot of oak. The oak tends to be quite big and quite old because there's, you know, there's, there are many producers doing this, not just in Argentina, and in fact in Chile, but also the world over that, you know, we're seeing this change in wines, right? Wines are becoming much more about expression and freshness and purity, not that big extracted heavy hitting thing that we all seem to like 10, 15 years ago. So they've turned down the huge concrete egg, you know, there's just this huge row of concrete eggs. And even if you see, I have this thing about, when you visit a winery, when they say, oh, can we show you our stainless steel tanks? You say, well, not, not really. <laughs> I've seen one, right? What does your stainless steel tank do that's different to everybody else's? Because then I'm interested. But I've seen a stainless steel tank. Now, if you haven't seen one before, there's huge value in that because it gives you a perspective and an idea of what's going on. But if you've seen one, you've seen one. Mm-hmm. So if you see, eventually once you've seen a concrete egg, you know, I remember I've still the very first concrete egg I saw actually was in Argentina, but it was down in, in Patagonia uh, at the Wemi, and they've got a really small one. You've seen one, you've seen one, right? But you walk into Piedra Infinita and there's just this row of them. And you go, okay, that's quite impressive. I've not really yeah. seen that many eggs. You know, the last time I saw that many eggs in a row was when I opened my fridge. Ha ha, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> they are a bit bigger, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you'd make a massive omelette with one of those. Oh, for goodness sake, bring it That'd back be to incredible. the Incredible. <laughs> Sorry. What would you pair with an omelette? It's got to be omelettes for breakfast, so it's got to be eggs something are, fizzy, right? Eggs are really, really difficult. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a sparkling wine or something a little bit like savoury and mineral, I like even like an acertico. Oh, that's a great shout. Because that's of the good... minerality, the salinity, the, yeah, the acidity. The salty... Yep, I'm going with yeah. acertico, especially if it's had some lees aging. How's that for quick thinking? Perfect. Can we go, go back to the wine now? Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, you know what? So you've got this incredible serenity of those beautiful eggs, and I totally do agree with you. What you've already just touched on is Argentina is a very special place for you. Um, you're not allowed to talk about Argentina with me because I just did an Argentinian episode, so boo. But... You did, and I, I certainly couldn't match up to your... G- I mean, what I wanted to say to you, actually, and you, re- you reminded me of that, you know, thank you for lowering your average by... You look back at your guest, you're Jamie Good, Laura Katana. Like, Laura Katana, wow. then me. Like, wow, wow, oh, your name has dropped to standards here. Oh, but thank wh- you. <laughs> what's I take it you're getting money off the government for this, right? Some Charity work, no? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get, do like carrying them community YTS sort of thing. Right. Well, the reason I asked you to come on was <laughs> because every time we talk, we often share South American wine chat and Chile specifically because I have worked for a Chilean winery for so many years. <laughs> and you share that as well so i know that your argentinian affiliation is so strong but why is it that you love chilean wine so much and why do we keep on having all that chat chile and and as we record this la patrona um who i know you know but anybody listening la patrona is uh, is my wife um <laughs> la patrona is out of earshot she's downstairs so that's fine um <laughs> i actually came to chile before argentina uh, so, you, know? you know, I started in the industry with Oddbins and, and it's, it's sometimes easy to forget how important something was when a lot of time has passed because we, we, we view things very differently through the mists of time. But, you know, obviously I've got a, a, a very, very big soft spot in my heart for Oddbins. It's where I started. They really helped me form how I feel wine should be 
you know, how you mm-hmm. should work with wine and the approach and all that. But Obbins at the time, you know, they were at the forefront of, of bringing these, what were then considered new and unusual and esoteric regions to the UK market. Which would have you been know, Chile. Which yeah. would have been Chile. They, mm-hmm. you know, they introduced, they'd pretty much introduced Australia to the, certainly from a, from a national perspective. But, you know, my first experience with Argentina wasn't, wasn't that great in terms of the wines. My, my first experience with, so I, I got thinking about this and I knew we were going to talk about Chile, as we always do. <laughs> but the, my first, the first experience with Chile that I actually remember was with a mega brand, or I used to sell it through Obbins, Casadero del Diablo. Specifically, the syrup. Boo! I can't remember no, no, if they labelled it. To. I'm not allowed to say boo. It serves a I, purpose. I know. It does. Let it, go. it does. Let it go. There's, and there's, there's times and places, and yes. it doesn't have a place in my life now. Um, mm-hmm. But it did then. But it does for I, many people. Mm-hmm. It, it does, and it's. You know, at, at the time, I just started in the industry, and I was on staff discount. It was like three fifty a bottle. What? That's you know, insane. Which is, which, and I drank it by the bucket load. So I started to drink this kind of go care like this, mm-hmm. and then because it was odd bins, we had loads of just more unusual. Oh, esoteric. I seem to remember people like um, La Postole or mm-hmm, yeah. Casa Silva, or maybe they came to me a little bit later, Casa del Bosque. I, I remember we had a wine called Equus. It was a Cab Sauv dominant wine. I think it was a black. I can't remember a great deal about it, but again, it wasn't hugely expensive on the shelf. It was above the what the average spend was then, yeah. probably a little bit above what the average spend is now, but not a premium wine. But I just remember tasting that. And what I took from that has become a theme in my love of chilling ever since, is purity. Mm. And I don't think anywhere does varietal purity as well as chilling. Mm. So when you say, what does Cab Sauve really taste like? Let's get a, a good Chilean example. You, and that's a movable thing, you know, because it then becomes, well, what does Cabernet Sauvignon taste like when it's from here or when yeah. it's from there? If you really want to get to the heart of what a grape variety does, regardless of kind of a, a wider content, chili does that so well. I remember tasting this Equus, Cab Sauv dominant, and I, like this light bulb goes off. Oh, that's what Cab Sauv is supposed to do. And so chili's kind of always stayed there. And I fell into the trap that I think a lot of consumers do. Uh, and I'm very happy for consumers to tell me they've not fallen into this trap because that's educational for me and that's really important. But I think consumers have fallen into the trap of seeing chilies being reliable and reliable. Cheap and cheery. Cheap and cheery. Sometimes reliable removes a sense of excitement. Oh, and I think okay. chili's incredibly exciting. We and know it is. It has a huge opportunity, right? Yeah. Because I meet very few people. And in my day job, as we mentioned, I talk to so many different people, different walks of life, different parts of the UK, I very rarely hear people say, oh, I don't really like chilli. I don't hear that. I, I can't think the last time somebody said that. I don't hear that often. But what I do hear is people going, yeah, but chilli and wine sits at a particular price point. Yes. So, okay, I get that. If you doubled your money in chilli, you would get an absolute binder. Oh, oh I don't know if I'm going to do that. So to me, mm-hmm. chilli feels really unexplored. Oh, totally. And the funny thing is, fun fact, if you actually take the three biggest wineries in Chile. So this is Contrary Toro, who of course, for mm-hmm. anybody who doesn't realise that, they are the ones making Casiero del Diablo. So if you take Contrary Toro, you take Santa Rita, and you take VSPT, which is, hang mm-hmm. on, Vina, Vina San, San Pedro, Pedro. Um, mm-hmm. Terrapaca. Yeah, you take those three. They own like 10% of all the vineyards in Chile, and they are responsible for a third of everything that is exported. So, of course, they have the control almost of, of great prices, mm-hmm. and, you know, they can... They're, they're, 
looking after so much of the land that they can produce that lower entry wine which means that so many people think of cheap and cheery because they do it so well but then on the other side to be positive they've opened up so many markets and as much as I was being snobby about Casiera del Diablo Casiera del Diablo put Chile on the map but it is a big challenge because about only I think it's a fifth of all wine that is exported is above like 10 pounds, 12 pounds, mm-hmm. literally a fifth. Mm-hmm. And so when I was working for uh, Ventiscaro Wine Estates, they go, still, look, they don't even pay me and I'm still putting in there. When I was working, so good. <laughs> they, they are, still are. They still, still are, are so good. Um, when I was working for Ventiscaro, you know, we had to work with Wines of Chile who would obviously showcase and market the wines in the UK. And the rule was they would, you were not allowed to show any wine that was less than £10 because mm-hmm. they are trying mm-hmm. to make it clear to people and consumers or even sommeliers that this is where Chile can... You you know 10 pounds and upwards like get excited about it we're not interested about the lower end so there, there is a lot of work to do but it is getting there it is getting better. It, it is getting there and if you look at if you look at when australia came into the market in the uk well, they did was the built same on, thing. On, on two things <laughs> and it was it works built on two varieties and cheap price right yeah, yeah, yeah. eventually with concerted effort consumers mm-hmm. have got to understand this regionality there's things to explore there's premiumization chili can achieve the same thing but it's a bit slow, easily. Though. We've it, it's a bit slow. So there's a really interesting thing. I don't, I'm sure you'll remember. I think this was 2015. There was a tasting, and I think it was called the Beautiful South, and it was a joint tasting: mm-hmm. wines of Chile, wines of Argentina, wines of South Africa. And there was this really weird thing in the room. So each country had its own section. There was a palpable excitement in Argentina. There was a palpable excitement in South Africa. But I didn't feel that aura when I was in the Chilean section. And it, it wasn't for the lack of the wines on show or the producers themselves, because you'd walk around and talk to the different producers and try the wines and go, these are absolutely staggering. These are great. But for some reason, that aura hadn't carried over. And I think that was due to the audience. And I just mm. wondered at that point, if as the trade, and this is a, a very broad brushstroke and it's my own impression of the day. So it, it's my own, nobody else's. I just wonder if as the trade we were all going in, going, yeah, Chili's great, but it's not really selling to consumers, so I'll just keep it at the lower end. And actually, I know I can sell more premium stuff from the other two countries. But it was this weird thing, because the wines on show were fantastic. And you go, yeah, this is exactly what I know Chili is and can be. What I've always attempted to do in my career, if it could be called that, is effectively just be a signpost. Is somebody comes into my shop and says, I'm looking for something. I'm the one that can go ask the questions, know which questions to ask and point them in the direction of finding something that they'll get a real kick out of. And often people get a kick out of exploring a new grape variety, a new region. And already people are starting to talk about Romanian wine and Hungarian wine again and Bulgarian wine again, which is not new to the UK. Mm-hmm. And you sort of go, do you know what? Chile can almost start completely fresh. Because you go, you like Chile, don't you? Yeah. There's, oh, I've got so many regions for you to come and explore. I, I could sell you a new wine every day for the next five years and and we wouldn't leave Chile. So that's really exciting. Well, where do we start? Do we start with Carmina? <laughs> uh, I, I, I've missed the cue there for one of my famous puns. Oh, what's your pun? Go on. Carmen, you're to say that. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got loads, but I'll, I mean, I'll stop I'm... there. Listen, I'm an easy target. I'll giggle at anything. But I liked it. I liked it. It was I good. Even, um, earlier today, I dropped that specific pun on Twitter to sort of well-known wine trade Twitterers. 
How well, did both it go? Of them know, well, both of them know me well enough to have not continued the conversation. They both liked they the tweet. They shut it down. Yeah, they shut and it down. And they shut it down immediately, which I think was a very wise move on their part. Yeah, right. I'm shutting it down. Definitely. Lee, shutting down. Yeah. By the way, everybody, November 24th, only in just a few weeks, it is Carmen Air Day. So, you know, this is the moment. Go and grab yourself a bottle. Like, no matter what you think about Carmen Air, go and get it. Because it's got so much better. This is, I think this is my opinion. What do you think, Lee? Is that, you know, Malbec, you know, it just evolved. It was, it's got beautiful sweet tannins. Everyone's kind of gone, oh yeah, I can get behind mm-hmm. this and yummy and whatever you price you kind of pay, it gets a bit better the more you pay. Done. Simple. But Carmen Air, because they didn't even know that it was Carmen Air when they started <laughs> producing it, it was all just a bit of a mess. And when you realize that this was a great variety that was effectively extinct for 150 years, Chile hasn't been able to go, oh, what's Bordeaux doing with this great variety or what's Argentina doing with this great variety mm-hmm. they've had to figure it out entirely by themselves right again I think that makes it really exciting because I think one of the traps consumers fall into to go back to that is consumers go okay I like chili they grow everything that I already know so I know they I know I can get a good cab so from there or a good Sauvignon Blanc etc they haven't really got anything to benchmark Carmenere against for the very reasons you said even Molbeck which the vast majority of people only really see it as coming from one place there's still some from, some association with the fact that it does grow in other places and, and you can compare you know, it to Cahors you can actually it, go straight back to France it's still growing there exactly and, and the, you know there's the fact that now say a producer in Australia will actively go and plant it trying to capture some of that market so then the consumer can go oh I've never tried one from Australia before <laughs> wouldn't it be great when, when Chile succeeds and it gets Carmenere to the point where Australia goes, I'm going to have some of that action. That's the moment, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I know there's, there's already a little bit of Carmen here in New Zealand. Yeah, um, there's, there's a, a couple bit of little spots, right? So, so interestingly, here we go. Yeah. So as you alluded to, you know, it, it was sort of nobody knew what it was. Everybody thought it was Merlot and all of that. Once it was correctly identified in Chile, that then swept across the world. And in 2000, in the year 2000 in Italy, uh, Carmenio was identified as covering 45 hectares of vineyards. By Wasn't 2010, it hidden there as well? Yeah, so mostly mm. up in the northeast. But in, in, in 2000, they had 45 hectares of Carmenier. By 2010, only through the process of correctly identifying it, not actually going out and then increasing plantings, Italy had 1,000 hectares of it. So they wow. had nearly 1,000 hectares where they went, oh, it's just... I, um, I can't remember what they, they... They didn't think... Some of it they thought was Merlot, some of it they thought was something else. But that that's an element of Chile leading. And Chile isn't always seen as a leader. We, we keep coming back to that, that consumer perception piece. Chile isn't always seen as a leader, which um, in, in some ways it, it should be. Here's Chile leading. We've figured out what this is. We're making a go of it. Everybody else going, well, let's go and correctly identify what we've got and see if we can do something with it too. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's actually quite a bit of it in Italy. So it's Jean-Michel Boussicot for everybody who wants to know. He was the ampelographer who mm-hmm. identified Carmenet. So this was in spring 1994 in mm. uh, one of Carmen's vineyards. Do you know exactly... I only found this out recently, not not when I was working for a Chilean winery <laughs> after. Do you know the exact way that he identified that it was not Merlot and was in fact Carmenet? Do you know? It's not something they talk about as much. I I believe it has something to do with either the colour of the leaves or the central lobe of the leaf, but 
I'm no and way no, off. no and no, and I'm not here putting you on the spot because I didn't even know this until recently. So, okay, Go are on. you ready to get geeky? This is amazing. Absolutely. Okay, I thought this was fascinating, and this story should be told more. So, first of all, for everybody who understands, in the springtime, <clears throat> that is when your bud bursts, and then you go into flowering, and at that point. When it becomes a flower, you can see the male and the female organs effectively. So the male organs are this thing called stamen. How would you describe that? I don't even know. Like, I always just think like of a lily for everyone, if you don't understand yeah. what I'm talking about. The, the pollen, all those little sticky things in the middle. Yeah, the thing this that is, sticks out with the pollen on it. That's, right, that's the thing how that's, I describe it. Perfect. The thing that sticks out. The thing that sticks out, all of those little things that stick out, they're called stamens. And then in the middle is the female like, you know, the ovary and her little female parts. The stamen is always straight, right? It's always straight. Yeah. With Carmen Air, it's twisted. So this ampelographer had identified, he'd only seen Carmen Air once in some like nursery as like this kind of historical, like whatever place. And he knew that Carmen Air had this twisted stamen. But of course, if he had come into this vineyard at any other time of the year, it wouldn't be in the flowering process. And it was exactly in that moment when it was in the flowering process where you could actually see the male part, the stamen, it was twisted. And he was like, whoa, guys. I've seen this once before, and this is not Merlot. And that's when they did the DNA testing, and then he was proved right. And that there's is a Hollywood Carmen... film in this. Come right? on, is that? Not I mean, like insane? Christopher Nolan playing around with 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 the narrative. Everything, <laughs> everything's out of order. The, you could have a load of crash zooming in when he sort of realizes he's found that. I, do you know? Twenty years I've been in this game, as I've said, I've never heard that. I didn't know that. No, and I tell you what, if we're going to make this into a film, what you would have is the winemakers rugby tackling him to the floor, saying no, no, and then like (laughs) hiding him in a room. We don't want to stop winning all these awards for our Merlot. Absolutely. So they kidnapped, you know, Jean Michel Boussacot in this film, right? Uh, Everyone, this has not happened, by the way. I'm just realizing, but you know, because Merlot was actually doing so well, and they were making so much money from Merlot, and actually even. Even after 1994, there were many, many wineries that did not do anything with their vineyards until the noughties. So literally mm-hmm. 10 years after, some people were still just going ahead and saying that they have Merlot vines because they didn't want to have to deal with the actual truth of, mm, we don't have it, and then have well, to look at labelling differently. There are some, because the, the story how it was misidentified, I think is sometimes slightly mistold in that I've heard the story told where they go, oh, they just thought it was exactly the same thing. No, they thought but it they was knew. very similar to the thing because they because it you know it it buds a little bit later it ripens actually quite considerably later than Merlot but they they believed it to be a clone of Merlot right Merlot Puma, um, so they so they did treat it sort of slightly differently but they they didn't actually sort of go oh it's exactly the same it's Merlot it's just no it's a clonal variant and it has these particularities to it so we'll keep calling it Merlot. That's fine, and there's going to be cognitive dissonance, right? If you're a grower and you've been growing this thing as Merlot, and you and you know it as Merlot, you just know that it behaves slightly differently. And then somebody comes along and says, "No, this bit here is a bit twisty, just a little." But you, you, you can only see that if you. It's like a conspiracy thing, isn't it? Oh you no, know, I did see it, but you can only see it at like f- five past midnight on the 29th of February on a leap year, but it has to be a full moon. If if you didn't if you didn't see it then, then you'll just have to take my word for it. But I, I don't think Chile. So officially, they recognised it in '98, didn't they? So it took about four years for the official yeah. kind of you like know, let's put the stamp and mm. seal on it. 
Um, but, you know, that's bureaucracy and well, that would be the same in any country. They couldn't even label it. Like, there was a big, big push. People wanted to export Carmenere when they realised, like, hey, yeah. we actually have this great variety. And certainly at this point, they believed that 98% of all the vines probably were in Chile. Now it seems that, that maybe it's slight, a lot less. But still, the majority of Carmenere is in Chile. And they yeah. couldn't... The government didn't allow them to put Carmenere on the label because actually in Chile, there is only something like... 22 white grape varieties and 26 red grape varieties that you can actually put on the label which is really interesting because like we're Mm going to touch on in part two pais as a grape variety and there's only specific regions down further south that you can actually put pais on the label yeah you you can make your wine from that but you can't call it pais there's um (laughs) oh who's who's you got i I forget his name which is awful Uh, i feel terrible forgetting his name but he makes a wine called mission mission impossible that that is la dispensa that is la dispensa Dispensa. i couldn't couldn't get to the name and the guy is from dorset he's english yes matt his name is like and yet so it's very clever so he's called it mission impossible impossible genius and also he said mission because in America, Pais is called, course, mission. called mission. And yeah. and instead, because it's the grape is grown in Colchagua, the Dio mm-hmm. Colchagua, but because in Colchagua you can't label your wines as Pais, he's also called it cold shower. Yes. Cold Chagua, yes. cold shower. Cold anyway, yes. very cool. I've forgotten that one. But everyone, Brilliant. that's a preview now to get you excited about our conversation for part two because we are going to talk about some of those very cool wines so we'll put a pause on that we'll come back to Carmen Air. and actually so yeah I think people were calling it there was a different name Grande Grande Vigure Grande yeah. Vigure Grande Vigure um, which yeah. so Grande Vigure was was a name that originated with the great variety in Bordeaux and Carmen Air does still exist in in Bordeaux, in, yeah, in very limited quantities. Yeah. Um, I did want. I did once have a percentage, but then I couldn't I find like it again. One. So it, it, it's <laughs> it's really small, but it, it still exists at some really top estates. So you've got Chateau Clermont in Poyac, um, Brand Cantonac, for example, Oak Bay. They still grow this variety, but they're not actually. Again, we're talking about the naming of things in Bordeaux. They're not allowed to call it Grand Vigure anymore. Uh, I, I don't know what the reasoning for that is, but okay. they're not allowed to. But it's interesting. So that's what they chose to call it in that kind of middle period when they were trying to figure out what to do with the labelling terms of Carmenere. And actually, we should point out for people who don't know this story, like we're missing parts of this, which is obviously Carmenere is, you know, Carmenere, we've ruined it. We're doing it in all the wrong way. Carmenere (laughs) is a great variety of Bordeaux. It came across, obviously, in the 1800s when Chile got this Bordeaux boom. So it was basically at, at a time when lots of people became very rich from like mining or ranching. So it became like these elites would travel the world and they were drinking lots of Bordeaux wines. And it then became really fashionable to drink Bordeaux wines. And eventually they then started bringing in those grape varieties. So that's when... Carmenere came in, obviously somehow slipped the net a little bit in terms of registration and kind of got muddled up with Merlot. But then mm-hmm. Phylloxera happened. So for everybody, I'm sure we've touched on this in podcasts so many times, but Phylloxera is this tiny little louse that basically devastated the majority of French vineyards. And so then when it came to looking for those Vitus vinifera, European vines to bring back. They brought them back from the countries like Chile, from the New World countries. But 
as far as they were concerned, Carmen Air didn't exist. And anyway, they didn't want to work with Carmen Air anymore because it's actually in Bordeaux, a really hard grape variety to deal with because it's late ripening. So in the autumn... When it rains and, it, and it's horrid, it, it, nobody it, it likes it. It responds very badly to too much water as well. And it, yes. and it suffers badly from color. So, you know, basically failure of the, of the flowers to set. So all of these problems, pretty common in Bordeaux. So you can see why they go, do, do you want this back? No. Uh, no, we don't. No, no thanks. Um, I did it because you mentioned phylloxera. And it's, it, again, I know it's something you've, you've talked about a lot. No, but... The best definition of phylloxera I've heard was from, a, from an Australian. And he said, yeah, it is a tricky little bastard. It's <laughs> um, like, yeah, that. Um, I'm, I'm just going to write that in my WSET essay. Good. Phylloxera is anyway I tricky that. little bastard. Um, Boom. But it, it's true. It, 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 it's it's quite an interesting thing because it so it sugar. It's got quite quick sugar development, right? So you're thinking, okay, high alcohol, but the sugar actually develops faster than the tannins. So you can end up in this weird position where you've got like quite high sugar ripeness. So it's quite alcoholic, but still quite green and astringent tannins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think. As someone who doesn't grow grapes and doesn't make wine, um, I'm, I'm very much... But drinks of, um, it. <laughs> I drink it. Um, I'm just a non-practicing observer, ultimately. That's that's all <laughs> I've ever been and all I ever will be. You, you, you can end up in this weird position of just, you know, it, it's quite difficult to ripen properly. So you sort of go, well, I'll ripen it a bit longer to make sure my tannins are nice and ripe and not green and stalking. And then you go, my alcohol's just gone off the chart. To mm. get this right, I think, is quite difficult from a from a ripening and picking perspective. I think this grape takes... A lot of work. So those people who do make it work, and I, I did mention the name earlier, Casa La Postal, you know, their count is sublime. They've really nailed it. And there are many other producers as well. Like, getting that right is so hard. La Postel does their La Postel collection or collection. Mm-hmm. And so they actually have three different Carmenaires made exactly the same way. And again, in the very uh, new way, which is a lot less oak, which is beautiful. And so mm-hmm. you can actually taste the terroir. So actually, they're a great uh, winery to go to if you want to experience Carmenaire in different sites. Um, yeah. And I think the interesting thing is, it is so worth mentioning that Yes, so for 150 years, it wasn't growing in Bordeaux. Chile had it this whole time, but didn't know it was actually Carmenet until it was identified. So they were watering it too much. So that, Mm -hmm. like you've already mentioned, so whereas Merlot might need to be watered like four times a month, Carmenet only needs it, obviously it depends on site, but once a month, that's a massive difference. Mm -hmm. And whereas Merlot really likes clay soils, Carmenet does not like clay soils. It likes free draining soils. It doesn't need that much water. And so Mm -hmm. this is the the transition, you know, since 1994, and ultimately it took 10 years for anyone to actually really start doing anything about it, or be honest. So then you say mid-noughties. So here we are really with 15 years of actual experimentation and understanding, mm-hmm. changing the soils, actually ripe, leaving it to ripen longer, but actually not... Sometimes it can take four weeks longer than Merlot, but actually if you yeah. leave it too long in the vine, yes, it's going to get too much sugar and too jammy. They were doing too much leaf plucking at one point and actually they mm-hmm. need to shade it. So it is all about finding that balance where it's a beautiful green herbal note and not a chocolate-covered jalapeno wine, right? Ah, oh, oh, what a description. Chocolate coloured <laughs> album. So I, I did a thing r- recently. We were looking for a new Carmenere for work. 
uh, and I, I get involved in buying just certain wines, but I'm not a buyer, and it's one of the worst jobs I could imagine being a wine buyer, to be honest. But uh, for me, anyway, for the people that do it well, they're, they're very good at it and enjoy it, I'm quite yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, we ended up trying a range of, of Carmen, yeah, and it, it was really interesting because you went from actually quite light, quite green, that pyrazzini, green pepper, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a bit, not quite jalapeno, but that thing in it. Then you'd get this middle ground where there was a little bit of richness, some nice structure, a bit of acidity, and then you'd get, as you've just said, like chocolate-covered jalapeno, and you'd sort of go, <laughs> almost, can I blend all three of these together? And I've got the perfect Carmenio. But that was, it wasn't a revelation because I've, I've been around Carmenio for a little while. It, it's a variety that I love. But just seeing that diversity with it, and it's something you touched on with, with Malbec, you know, there is diversity in it. There's diversity in Carmenio as well. Yes. But that's what makes it so exciting is it's still exploratory within mm-hmm. Chile. It's still mm-hmm. figuring out, hang on, we do we do need somewhere with, with diurnals because if we cool it down at night, we can slow that sugar development, let the tannins start forming, keep the acidity um, and build some, some more quality, more layered fruits. So it's, it's this real, it kind of exemplifies what's great about Chile, exploration, creativity, vibrance, right, all contained conveniently for the purpose of this podcast within one grape variety <laughs> absolutely it's beautiful i personally absolutely love carmen Air. i think that whereas we touched on malbec it has these lovely sweet tannins you don't get the sweetness of tannins with carmen mm-hmm. but you get this like silky chalkiness i think when done mm. really well it's this chalky tannins the tannins are medium this is actually kind of it's got this real it can be really smooth and rounded mm. as a style you know and the most beautiful examples they can have these really beautiful like red currant and pomegranate notes with like just a a touch of of mocha with beautiful Mm. acidity and it might just be a little bit of green peppercorn or something and now there are many carmenas that don't have any green notes at all yep yeah, there's you know? um, there's a lot out there that are you know sort of bigger, richer, you know more more chocolatey fruit, um, and and just dark fruit and, and kind of losing that that hint of greenness. Absolutely. And so now you're going to be able to find them. I mean, the Central Valley, and when we say the Central Valley, this is from Maipo, which is around Santiago, doing the Rapel Valley. So that's Cachapoal and Colchagua, and it goes to Curico and Maule. So this is the the Central Valley for anybody who wants to know. That's where most of the Carmenere grows. And specifically, mm-hmm. it's Colchagua, it's Cachapoal, but also... And sorry, and Maipo, um, but mm-hmm. also just north of Maipo in Aconcagua as well. So I think it's worth, so for, certainly for me, Peumo, which is a very small little region in Cachapoal, this is, yeah. that is really, I mean, that's got a lot of history, I think, for growing the Carmen Air. There's some really older, real old vines there um, and some lovely, great tannin structure comes out of there. Uh, the, the bold, the, the, the richest and the boldest, I think, tends to be kind of Peumo and also Apalta, the small region in mm-hmm. Col- Colchagua. So they're the two, I think, uh, are almost the boldest. Quite full and rich as well can be in Aconcagua because where they are, it's more, it's a little bit flat. It's not too high altitude. And then if you like real fresh fresh notes and a little bit more more of the red fruit and less of the dark berries then you want to go to Maipo Alta or Maipo Andes mm-hmm. depending on how they call it um and and 
I'm going to plug Ventiscaro again because I can. Because oh, I can. Just because I love them too much and I don't want to ever not talk about them. They just released their Carmen Air, which is high altitude in, in Apalta. And it's completely different to anything because it's just got such elegance. So... It's so interesting to see where Carmen is going to go. Um, so people should definitely really look for, I think, would have I missed any regions that you would say? No, I think, you, you know, you a, a, a Palta for me is the one that I get sort of really excited about out, out of all of them. They've all got their, their different merits. A Palta is the one that I suppose resonates with me. Payuma definitely. Yeah, I, th- I think you've touched on all the sort of they're the, 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 key, the three key areas, right? That's, yeah. These are the ones that you'd want to look at because you'll find those different expressions. I think Apalta is that sort of horseshoe valley and you really feel the effect of Humboldt and it's free-draining and it's low-fertility soil and you just get, they say, that elegance in there. Mm-hmm. That's where you've got uh, Clo Apalta from La Postola. Surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> and, and also I mentioned them earlier, Vina Casa Silva's Altura from there as well. I mean, that's a fabulous one. And you told me you've got the Purple Angel. I I do I do like the Purple Angel. I have a huge soft spot for Montes was one of the first. You know, I, I said I, I started exploring Chile with kind of the really big brand stuff, which which mm. is great because that's how most people might get into Chile. Montes was kind of the next stepping stone where I went, okay, they're, they're big enough to, you know, be somewhere like Obbins, but they're not enormous, and the wines from Montes generally just blew me away. It's, and it's it's a bigger, richer style, and it's got that really lovely cordite smoking gun thing. Mm. That's one of those... There are certain wines, I think, that you kind of still remember when you first tasted them, uh, and that's one of those wines for me. I still remember where I was when I first tried those, like, this. It, I didn't know wine could do this. This mm. is incredible. Wow. Yeah, huge fan. And they're such nice people. Oh, well, that helps, doesn't it? But, you know, I just think it's so funny, isn't it? When we talk about Carmen, I just think there's just so much that people have to to experience. It isn't, there might be a lovely green bell pepper, but it's not all about herbaceous notes. It's not all about green. But no. but there should be a little bit of green, I think. You know, don't be scared of the green. Remember, Carmen Air comes from, it's part of the same family as Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot because they all share the same father, which is Cabernet Franc. So, Cabernet Franc, which is in itself, I mean, that as a variety just i i get very excited about cabernet Franc. <laughs> but it's but it's it's you know it i, I think it'd be unfair to say it's the james brown of grapes because it hasn't got that many children um i think we've, we've <laughs> got to go further back in its history to say that but it has fathered these incredible varieties that we all know and it's sort of mm. a little bit forgotten about yeah. you go hang on this is where it all started yeah. and that's you see that theme as you're saying you get that, like that that a hint of greenness in a wine when it's just a hint of greenness and it adds a layer of complexity, is what it's like anything, isn't it? Um, was it Oscar Wilde said everything in moderation, including moderation? A little bit of greenness you amongst everything quote. else is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> There's another Oscar Wilde quote what about most most people aren't real people. They just that most people are just a collection of quotes that they've remembered that other people have written, and I'm the perfect example of that because <laughs> I've never said any. I've not said a single thing that's original. Everything I do is just a copy of something else. Well, actually, um, you, that is an interesting point. You turn that on yourself, but I wonder how many of us are entirely original thought. Now that is something to think about, isn't it? That's. Uh, I didn't know you were going to start doing um, philosophy well, on your podcast, I but know. I think this is a cool new angle for you. I, to be honest. Nobody eats, sleep, wine, philosophize, repeat. <laughs> it doesn't quite have Brilliant. the same ring to it, but I have to say, <laughs> you know, I do. I I get quite deep and spiritual <clears throat> many a day, but I kind of keep that separate because I'm not sure. Maybe I need another podcast. 
wine and spirituality. Yes. Mm. Yes. There's a lot of room for that. Everybody listening, let me know because we can we can do some om at the beginning of the podcast <laughs> to bring it all in. You know, we can namaste on the way out. We can discuss. Anyway, let's move back to the wine because everyone who's not into spirituality is like, get on with it. What are you talking about? Honestly. <laughs> well, everybody listening, you've got two weeks to go and get yourself a bottle or two or three to compare and really get involved because me and Lee like it. We're not the only ones, we promise. It's a delicious oh, variety. There are more. There's, there's at least two more people I know, that I can think of off the top <laughs> of my head without even putting any effort in. At least two. Exactly. That's it, four. Okay? So go, go out and, and be the fifth. No, everyone who knows about wine can appreciate the very good stuff of Carmen and there's plenty of it. So, brilliant. Carmen Air, tick. So I hope that's got you warmed up for some more chilly talk. Next week, we're going to be talking about Old Vine Carignan, Old Vine Pais, returning to the traditional Chilean way of making wine. So you're going to learn some of the techniques that farmers would have been using 500 years ago. We're talking about some of the associations you should know about. So Vigno, an exciting movement towards quality wine production using those old vine Carignan from a wine region called Maole. And it's Maole and then further south in places like Itata and Bio Bio that's really building a lot of excitement. There's lots of growers down there with very small plots of Crioja varieties, so traditional varieties that have been abandoned. They're gnarly and aged and ready to be remembered. And then with Movi, this was formed to bring a new perspective on Chilean wines. So I'll tell you all about that next week. Lots to look forward to. Now, in 2003, I believe it was, British critic and the influential wine writer for Chile, Tim Atkin, master of wine, he famously upset the Chilean winemakers when he said this quote, Chile is the Volvo of the wine world. It is safe reliable and rather boring. Well, little did he know that this quote would never be forgotten and he would eat his own words. He writes the Chile Special Report every year since 2017. And from that first report, he said, a much nicer quote, thanks to the initiative and investment of the wineries that are pushing the country's viticultural limits, searching out higher, cooler and more marginal climates and terroirs that are tailored to individual varieties and wine styles. Long and thin it will always remain, but Chile is packing a lot of excitement into such a confined space. Right, thank you so much for listening. Please do share the podcast with your wine-loving friends. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode and leave a rating on Spotify or Apple or the podcast app you have if it lets you. Have a very inspiring week. Don't be a Volvo. And I'll see you back here next Monday. Cheers to you. <laughs>